and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I am your host, publisher of said newsletter, Matt Brown, coming at you here from beautiful Chicago, Illinois. I am joined here, as always, by my colleague, my co-host, my buddy, Brian Fisher. Brian, how you doing, buddy? Doing good. The sun is shining. College football is, is on our TV now. And what, what's better than that? Uh, man, what, what is better than that? After, after a, a joyless s- several months, it, it, it's, it feels good. Not that we don't care about all this other stuff you're going on, but it does feel good to just sit down on the couch with a, with a cold, refreshing beverage and all your internet friends and just post through New Mexico State game. I'm not a complicated man. I don't have complicated hobbies. I enjoy this, especially after these last couple of months. Well, I, if, if there's anything we learned, it, it's great to see some of the, the whack matchups. It's, uh, you know, we got the Southland on ESPN Plus. We got, uh, we got Kansas football. We got UTEP. We got it. We got it all uh, right now in college football. Who, who, who could want anything more, anything more than that unlimited access to UTEP football? And that's a good segue for what I want to talk about here today. Not just UTEP. But we've we've had our heads down here on these conference previews. We thought it might be a, a nice chance here before we get really too far into the weeds of this current season and some of the big administrative things that are happening to do another mailbag episode, give you a chance to answer a couple of questions from you, the listener, uh, from on Twitter and my DMs, my email, uh, our Discord server we have here set up with the Extra Points newsletter. Um, and I want to I want to dig into these a little bit because obviously there's a bunch of stuff going on here that people are interested in, as you would expect, given um, the things that we write and cover, a lot of them are conference realignment related, but I want to hit one that's a little bit different up front. This is from a regular friend of the pro- program, uh, Twitter user Peyton WXYZ, um, who asks, what's your favorite conference that doesn't exist anymore? Brian, for you, is this something that you actually have memories watching or is there something from history that you, you have, uh, that you're pining for, even though you never got a chance to experience it? I will tell you a story. So, uh, First of all, my the hashtag usage on Twitter for me of long live the SWC dates back really since I started on Twitter. So that that, that tells you the direction I, I want to go. But to, I mean, my parents have a set of like glasses and it's like uh, the uh, all the Southwest Conference logos. Mm-hmm. And and I want that set of glasses so badly for, for, for myself, you know, like I almost want to buy my parents some, a new set of glasses just so I can have the Southwest conference glasses, uh, that they have to, to drink at, at their house. So, uh, if, if that gives you an indication of what my answer would be, uh, I think that's, uh, it's, it's going to be pretty hard top, but, uh, being a Texas kid, uh, definitely, uh, seeing the end of the Southwest conference days, uh, as a youngster growing up, uh, definitely is firm in my mind and, uh, having a, a lot of, you know, family members that went to those type of schools that, that definitely pops up to me. Uh, as the one league I would love to see back. And frankly, it, it would be great to see back, even if it's not in, in a college football sense, um, you know, from a basketball to a baseball sense, getting some of these regional leagues, uh, as I've kind of mentioned on the podcast a few times now, would be great for college sports, I think, you know, going back to the more regional structures that uh, some of these conferences used to be and, and getting back to that uh, ultimately would be a good thing, I think, for a lot of those, especially non-revenue sports. But I don't think we're going to see uh, the, the return of the Southwest Conference. I know there's been a lot made about uh, why that league broke up, but uh, I think that's uh, one that has a bit of a nostalgic and uh, fond memories uh, for me. I, I I think I'm just young enough where I don't really have meaningful memories of watching what we, what, any, watching any of those games, especially growing up, growing up in Ohio. But... It, it, that is a great example of the, this bygone era where 
you could bus to almost all of your conference games and you would actually see those people on a regular basis. That That is the, the, the highest level of college athletic hate is when the per your rival is not somebody you just see on the internet, but somebody that you go to church with or is in your office. And in that league, there's no getting around the fact that you're going to have people who went to all those Texas schools in every facet of your life. Um, I'm, I'm sure that would make the trash talking never stop. Well, and, and I think that was part of the the appeal of this conference was it was your neighbors. It was the people that you went to work with. And and while that certainly kind of carried over a little bit to the, the you know, the Big 12 and uh, certainly the, the combination with the, the Big 8 uh, down down the road. But uh, I think that was a real part of the, the history, especially when when Texas was not, you know, really inundated with as many transplants as they've had to, especially areas like Dallas-Fort Worth and, and Austin and, and, and Houston. You know, there, there were a lot more of those families that uh, did go to Baylor and, and did have that rivalry uh, with their neighbor down the street that went to Houston or to TCU. And so I think that ha- has gotten lost a, a little bit in the shuffle, especially as a lot of those, those schools just simply uh, change leagues uh, so often. You know, I mean, it, it was hard to kind of build up those natural rivalries if you're a TCU fan in, in the Mountain West. And I mean, you know, are you really going to be that involved in, uh, in in terms of playing a, a BYU or a Boise State, you know, when you have decades, decades of history uh, with a school like Baylor or Houston, something like that. So I, yeah. I think that was that, that's always been part of the appeal and, and part of the nostalgia that, that's kind of been baked into the Southwest Conference, plus all the great stories of, of recruiting that really led to the league's downfall. I think that that is the other aspect that I always think for the general cloud football fan, the, the, the trans A&M, the, you know, the, those type of stories yeah. uh, really do resonate still still today, uh, given the level of cheating that, that went on in that conference. One of my absolute favorite college football books, one I would wholeheartedly recommend to all of our listeners is David Whitford's A Payroll to Meet, which is the, I think, the definitive history of the SMU cheating scandals. We have to use plural because there, there, were, there were more than one. It, it's not moralistic. There's not a lot of tis- tisking here, but it, it really gets you into the weeds, not just, I think, in the history of Texas politics, the history of Dallas, the history of what cheating meant back then, and these outsized personalities. As somebody who uh, I don't think had ever been to Texas until well into his adulthood, it was new information for me. I absolutely loved it. Um, this is a trickier question for me, and I, I think I kind of picked up some secondhand nostalgia when researching my book, um, What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions, uh, if you're interested. But but one of, one of the leagues that never really became a football league, but I kind of it's fun for me to think about going back, is is the Metro Conference. You know, because yeah. the, the Metro is, is the, the was was had the potential to be the really the first super conference the first made for tv super conference this was first proposed in 1990 it would have been a 16 team league that on on one division would have essentially been your old big east bc Pitt, syracuse uh west virginia and then also cincinnati also rutgers and then in your south you'd have like this a, a big chunk of what would become the football big east and also some of the american some of the conference usa kind of caliber teams so you'd have florida state Miami, Memphis, South Carolina, Tulane, ECU. And when you look, and the, the original proposal included Penn State, because that was right before they went to the Big Ten. This was a really good basketball league for a while. Cincinnati and Louisville uh, in the 80s. Memphis, uh, they, they had they had St. Louis uh, as, a, as an affiliate member. Georgia Tech was in this for a little bit. Like this, this, was, this was a good league. And this is you know, the beginning of where some of these American athletic schools really began some of their, their shared history together. 
And the idea was good, I, I you know, for, for the super conference. It would have completely changed the trajectory of a program like ECU or, you know, I think brought would have helped bring Tulane back from the dead. It would have it would have solved some of the problems here with football in the Northeast. Didn't end up happening. And, and fortunes kind of ebbed and, and flowed from there. But I, I think it would have been fun. And you look at some of these kind of mid-major schools in the Southeast and the South that never really got a chance to be in a, in a proverbial power conference. Your Southern Miss right your your uh your your ecu um maybe maybe to some extent um you know you know memphis who knows what they could have been if they had access to that kind of television backing that kind of financial structure 30 years ago um what, what you know what what kind of programs they could be because they I mean, even then they, they have an advantage i think over some of the proverbial sleeping giant programs now they've always had fans they've always had a football tradition they just never had the money and this was their best chance to do it Oh, yeah, I completely agree with the Metro. I would also throw out the whack um, as, as it used to be. You know, yeah. I think that was the introduction to a lot of folks in terms of Boise State and, and their rise for those BCS buster ranks was, was back when they were in the whack. And it was really the I mean, it was the first super, super conference, you know, where you're talking about 16, 16 teams, teams and you're yeah. talking about pods. You're talking about, uh, you know, really some of the things that uh, I think, you know, really, truthfully, the whack was was kind of on the cutting edge of and, and really ahead of its time. I mean, they had, um, you know, unique television deals, um, you know, I mean, and, and really just the, the brand of football that the WAC was all about. You know, they, they were throwing the ball around the yard, uh, you know, at a time when really we, we, we did not see that kind of explosion in the spread offenses that we have today. So I think they, the other one in, in my mind would, would probably be the WAC, but you're right that the Metro comes to mind as well, especially because of the, the reverence I think it does have, especially in the, in the basketball circles for how good that league was. Yeah, the, the early WAC are, would be the league that I actually do remember watching. Because, you know, growing up in Ohio, but being a Latter-day Saint, people still wanted to watch BYU in our social circle. But if you didn't have cable, there was no chance of getting that, even if you did. So people would, like, drive to our, our stake center, like our, our bigger church, and it'd be, like, one of those gigantic satellite dishes that looks like it might, like, you know, be involved in spacecraft to pick up some regional cable station and watch – bizarre uniforms and 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 football that for somebody that was watching still three yards in a cloud of dust big 10 it was like watching a completely different sport um and I, i'm not gonna lie to you and say that i watched every week it's been, you know it was a long drive to, to get to those games and you know byu wasn't really that good for for most of that time period but it, i mean when we, when we did go it was fun um and then you know you're, you're right like boise gives us one of the best college football games of all time there's a lot of great history that came out of that league. And, you know, hopefully they're going to be able to build some new traditions in the in the new WAC and, and avoid the mistakes that they made the first time. Um, speaking of obscure leagues, maybe obscure sports. Uh, this is another question here uh, from Twitter user. I'm pulling this up. Looks like the, 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 the Jacklon uh, on Twitter asks, you know, I was listening to an earlier going for two, and you talked about the alliance and one potential benefit could be something with Arizona State hockey in the Big Ten. Uh, I've long believed that they were going to eventually join. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about if you've heard anything on that front or what the benefits might be on, on both sides. Well, you know, friends, I'm, I can't sit here and tell you that I can break news on the college hockey expansion front. What I can tell you is uh, a while ago, I remember actually talking with some Big Ten senior executives back when I was still at Vox about this idea that, hey, you know, if you bring in Arizona State, does that help BTN distribution in, in, the, in Arizona, in, in the West Coast? Is that something you do for TV markets? And they said, you know, I like where your head's at, 
but no chance. <laughs> like it, 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 that's that's football and basketball. You're not you're not you're not reaching you're not really really reaching new new TV sets with Hopkins Lacrosse, which is a way bigger brand than Arizona State Hockey is. It's something you do um, because you want to you want to bring in like minded institutions and improve the quality of your product. I don't know if that's something that the Big Ten really needs to do, especially if Illinois actually executes on this plan they've been talking about for it seems like years and starting a hockey team. I think that there are a couple of other programs within the Big Ten that if they got one donor to help with their facilities problem, uh, that they would have the potential to, to have a, a, a successful, long-lasting, sustainable men's and women's hockey program. There's, there's a surprising amount of talent in the Western part uh, of this division. So I don't think you need to do it. Could you agree, you know, if, if they're still looking for, uh, for a home? I know they played a Big Ten schedule with the pandemic this year or last year. Could you set up an agreement, kind of like a Notre Dame ACC thing, where Arizona State's playing like five games against Big Ten teams each year, um, and gets a chance to be in some of those markets? Sure, yeah, that's fine. There's there's no reason not to throw them a bone. They're an interesting team to watch. Uh, if you bring them in, great. But I don't and, until more teams out west start programs. But I don't think it's I don't think it's a requirement, and I don't think that's necessarily the Big Ten has to do because now that you've brought in Notre Dame and Michigan recruiting at the level that it is right now. I think you can negotiate from a little bit more of a position of strength. And I think you would do that for any other affiliate membership deal that you look at. Does that pass the sniff test for you? It does. I think, you know, ASU hockey just in general is, is one of the more fascinating stories out there, especially given all that that's gone on in the last couple of weeks uh, in, in the desert, um, you know, especially with the coyotes and, and their lease issues, um, you know, with the, the city of uh, Chandler and, and everything that's gone on, uh, you know, locally. I mean, this ASU has pumped a lot of money and not only into the program, but building a fantastic, you know, if, if you've seen the, some of the renderings, a fantastic new college hockey uh, arena on near campus. And, and I think that's going to be huge for them as a program, just in terms of recruiting talent. Um, I, I know it's part of their kind of redevelopment of a lot of the areas around Tempe uh, is, is, is athletics facilities and ASU's hockey's program is, is right at the top of the list. And so um, the amount they've invested, the, the amount of um, you know, really effort and, and energy that ASU, a program that you wouldn't think uh, could be a, a bit of a mecca of, of college hockey out West ha- has really turned it into. And I think where their kind of future lies is going to be really interesting that this could be one of those programs that, you know, let's face it, although it's not really a, a PAC 12 program, you know, maybe the, the new commissioner in, in George Klyovkov, um, you know, with the, as part of this alliance, he says, you know what, this is an interesting thing is it's going to help one of my schools. Uh, maybe we can do something within this, this alliance framework where we got 80s talking to each other. Maybe not just on, on a scheduling component, but maybe there is something for them. Maybe they're they're hosting games uh, at, at ASU in terms of some sort of preseason tournaments or yeah. something like that. You know, you, you can see the same, same in uh, Las Vegas. You know, I mean, that has certainly been a growing hockey market. You're, you're starting to see a team in Seattle uh, in the next couple of years in the NHL. So uh, I think hockey out West is always an intriguing uh, issue, I think, for, for nationally being a, a big four f- sport. But that filters down to the, the college ranks as well. And I think ASU hockey, really a microcosm of, of what do you want to do in terms of p- building these programs? Uh, you know, you, you can look no further than what ASU has been doing with their hockey program. I mean, that that a- ASU hockey, Utah lacrosse, you know, Arizona State, Oregon State wrestling. There, there's a couple of these kind of loner Western schools now that uh, that run sports that are a much bigger deal in in the ACC and in the, in the Big Ten, and I'm not sure if there's an immediate um, equivalent for the Big Ten. I mean, it's the I don't know if you get Ohio State volleyball more chances to play out west. I guess maybe maybe, maybe there's something there, but that 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 yeah that that's a that's a, a near term easier to kind of turn potential benefit of the alliance 
than any of the, the stuff that we talked about last time. I mean, the commissioners did mention their Olympic sports having a role in this alliance. So I think it is important to keep that background. And, and maybe this is something that, that does kind of expand. I mean, the, the Pac-12 has, has a bit of a symbiotic relationship with the MPSF. Maybe there's something there to where they bring in some of those other schools as well, uh, to where you're, you're scheduling games against each other. So it's not just a, a trip for, as you mentioned, uh, an Ohio State team coming out west. It's not just to play one program. You can play two or three um, You know, in, the, in, the, in that non-conference slate, at, especially at a, at a time of year when maybe it's, it's getting a little bit colder. And you, you want to escape out west. Uh, I think it, it does make a lot of sense for them to think very broadly in terms of this alliance and what it could mean for the Olympic sports. And certainly hockey is, is one of those things, but it's definitely not limited to the, to that sport either. Um, speaking of Olympic sports, uh, Twitter user Rev DJESQ asks, is there anything stopping the Big Ten and Pac-12 from merging or, or mixing or, or collaborating on a much deeper level? There, there are two networks. Uh, BTN and Pac-12 Network, just a la ESPN, ESPN2. And if not, why not do this and get better carriage, carriage, get a premium tier, save on network infrastructure efficiencies? So there's a couple of reasons off the top of my head. I could definitely see why the Pac-12 would be interested in this. One is ownership. Pac-12 owns everything. The Big Ten Network is a joint venture between the Big Ten and Fox. So you would need not only Big Ten presidents and schools aligned on that mission, but also Fox. Uh, I would also look at this and think, boy, that benefits the Pac-12 a whole lot more, but it benefits the Big Ten. You know, BTN is available on every streaming service. It's on basic cable in, in most of the country. It's not difficult to get a hold of, and we've already established that consumer demand for the Pac-12 network is not very strong. If the Pac-12 is able, you know, wants to strike some kind of deal and sell an equity stake into Fox to help develop that station and save them some money, sure. And, and but I don't, I don't really know if there's anything that benefits both parties equally. Um, maybe you're making a face that maybe I'm missing something here. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned it right off the bat there. The, the difference in, in this equation is, is Fox. You know, they, they are not only an equal partner, but really they are the ones kind of running the network on a day-to-day basis. Even the, the, the former head of BTN is now running Fox Sports. So I think That's that right. kind of shows the, the symbi- symbiotic relationship be- between the two entities. And, um, you know, the, the Pac-12 has floated the idea of selling off a stake of their, their networks um, in, in large part. Uh, to help, kind of help leverage that in distribution fights. Um, you know, there, there was certainly been talk early on when, when Larry Scott was forming the networks to whether they would go in with ESPN or Fox. Ultimately, the Pac-12 networks was was done with a deal with the cable networks. And, and that's why they uh, not only have that, that whole ownership stake in them, but that, that's how they've uh, been able to staff up. They've been able to get distribution early on was was through the deal with their, their cable networks and, and cable providers. So, Unwinding from those contracts, selling off a stake, um, you know, to where there maybe you form a another joint venture with the, with the Big Ten, to where you house both networks. Could that be done? Sure, but I, I think the ultimate future of the Pac-12 networks is not certainly not anywhere close to the six or seven linear channels that they currently have, but 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 much more on the streaming uh, front. And I think if if Fox or ESPN were to get interested in in buying a stake or, or taking over those rights, um, you could even see you know the Pac-12 networks going away entirely. You know, it, it costs a lot of money to operate TV's channels. It costs an opera, a lot to staff up and 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 run. Uh, the 850 events that the Pac-12 Networks requires um, for a yeah. TV standpoint, it costs a lot of money to put all those on air um, as, as part of fulfilling their contracts that they need to do. So uh, 
it, it's a great idea in theory, but I think more likely than not, the Pac-12 is bundling all those rights that you're going to see with Pac-12 networks as part of their first and second tier rights, and and that ultimately is going to be part of some sort of streaming product. Um, and we already saw, uh, you know, Tubi, which is uh, the Fox Sports uh, streaming product that they bought last year yeah. uh, for four hundred something million dollars. They they've launched a Tubi on sports. Part of that is content from the Pac-12 networks as part of their Pac-12 Insider. Uh, I believe there's Big Ten content, there's Fox Sports content. So uh, I think that's a much more likely route for the Pac-12 networks is getting less of a, a linear carriage and, and pushing that front, uh, but more on the streaming streaming wars as, as part of uh, some broader deal with these media companies uh, with their uh, new negotiations coming up. I, th- I think you're right. Uh, I, I understand the intellectual appeal for something like that and and maybe if you're an olympic sports fan you would you would be cool paying an extra like 60 cents on your cable bill to, to just roll that up on under one channel or have an overflow channel but i, I don't know how practical that is uh, in, in real life um another question here coming in from twitter.com that does not have anything to do explicitly here with realignment uh twitter user tommy asks us what game are we actually most excited about? That's a good question. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I mean, that Oregon Ohio State—that's, I mean, that's a that's a huge matchup just in terms of perception for both teams. You got uh, new quarterbacks kind of being broken in uh, for for both teams in terms of their first real big test, um, especially on the road for for Oregon. I mean. It, it, to me, that that is kind of the, the definition of those big non-conference games. But I mean, also, you, you we were talking about the Southwest Conference earlier. I mean, Texas is going to play Arkansas. That, that, that's going to be a fun one. Even just the farewell tour of Oklahoma and Texas throughout the Big 12. I know we talked about it on the Big 12 show, but I mean, just the, the, the reactions you're going to get from home teams, because let's face it, they may be gone in two years. This might be the last chance that Iowa State fans have to say uh, goodbye in their own unique way to the Sooners. Oh, Texas is never going to Ames ever again. There's no chance in hell that they're ever going to do that. So you got to get those licks in while you can. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the, the like I said, the amount of horns down and 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 fake boomer sooner chance that you're going to see. I mean, it's going to be off the charts in in, in the Big Twelve uh, once we get into kind of that heart of of conference play. But uh, I mean, it's just such a unique year. I, I think you can you could look at you know, I mean, Texas A and M uh, playing Alabama. That certainly has huge implications uh, in terms of the the national picture. Uh, we we know it's going to be huge in the in the division race in the SEC West. But, uh, you know, can, can one of Nick Saban's disciples knock him off? You know, I think that that's a question uh, that is certainly out there. And, and Jimbo Fisher has probably his best team that he's had since uh, the Florida State title winners uh, going back a couple of years. So uh, to, to me, there, there's so many intriguing things about this season. And, and let's face it, we, we, we also got to mention, we don't know if, if we're all going to get all these games in. Maybe there's some forfeits here. I mean, there's always the possibility that a quarterback uh, ends up getting lost for one of these games, and you're, you're like Maryland throwing out a, a third-string linebacker. I love those type of situations. Maybe not the reason why there's a linebacker out there for uh, playing quarterback, but those unique uh, circumstances that lead to some of the, the things that happen on the field in college football are, are part of uh, the reason why, why I love this sport. And so to see some unique uh, issues like that uh, pop up uh, might be interesting to, to watch throughout the year as well you know what else I, you know what another game that i'm, I'm kind of interested in as sort of a sort of a sickos kind of game the nebraska oklahoma game <laughs> right we you know we week week three and the pressure's already through the roof and there's all this history there's all of this uh, pageantry that's associated with this game even though oklahoma is going to be favored by like 30 
Um, and the, Nebraska tried to get out of it, and then they tried to get out of it by you know having their coach go you know uh, sneak around there and not use their athletic director and, and all of the stuff here. And there's there's going to be so much emotion, and every possible outcome I think is hilarious. Oklahoma winning by sixty is hilarious. Nebraska somehow winning would be extremely hilarious. Uh, Nebraska making this a game somehow after you know basically admitting to being scared ahead of time would would, would be funny. Uh, there, there's nothing that 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 can happen here. I think that's going to make us go like I wish, uh, you know, I wish this game hadn't been played. And then of course your other TV while this is happening is Cincinnati Indiana, which five years ago nobody could have ever predicted would be like a massively important college football game. Um, it is it is this year. This this is this is uh, your your chance to to. Plant your, your flag in the ground here for a nine win, ten win Indiana team, or the class of the G five. Like, it's like the the lunchtime shift that week is going to be just tremendous. I can't wait. Well, and there, I mean, there's so many to, to really pick from. I mean, you go, you mentioned uh, Indiana. I mean, Cincinnati also plays Notre Dame. Notre Dame plays Wisconsin in, in Soldier Field. I think that's going to be fantastic. It, it really is too bad that we didn't get the the return version where uh, Wisconsin's playing uh, in, in Lambeau. But uh, I think to be able to play Notre Dame in, in Soldier Field is going to be fan, uh, really fascinating uh, to watch. Just, uh, you know, bringing those two fan bases uh, to, to your neck of the woods there in Chicago uh, is going to be a lot. The first Oklahoma-Texas game, I mean, if you're a college football fan, uh, if you can go to the state fair again just to be able to see Big Tex and, and eat some various fried things that uh, you immediately regret eating about uh, four hours later, uh, Oklahoma-Texas definitely, and I think it's the second week of October, definitely put that on, on, on the bucket list. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's there's just so many intriguing games, and I think in terms of looking forward to, it's going to be really interesting. I think the USC-Notre Dame game this year, has a huge impact on the national landscape, not necessarily from a college football playoff perspective, but in terms of just the the discussion around USC and Clay Helton, that game is going to play a bigger uh, factor in tor- in terms of whether the the Trojans are going to keep Clay Helton or not. And then you talk about all the dominoes that come from that decision. We've we mentioned on an earlier show about Matt Campbell. Uh, I would imagine he's one of the names that is going to keep coming up uh, as the Cyclones keep winning uh, for that USC job. You're going to hear pretty much anybody that's having a, a good season is going to be mentioned for that USC job if the Trojans lose and uh, or even are not competitive, especially uh, with that game at Notre Dame in late October. Um, you know, Alabama is playing Florida uh, right around the corner. That's a game that we frankly have not seen all that often. Uh, we, we saw it in the SEC title game. Yes, it's a rematch, but in terms of the regular season, we haven't really even seen that. And, and I would also throw out one more uh, Ohio State at Michigan end of the year, something I think you know a little bit about. But if you remember, there was a, a we're going to hang 100 on them uh, quote by by uh, that kind of got leaked out, I believe, um, from Ryan Day. That game did not end up happening. I would imagine that quote gets a resurface just a few times between now and the end of November. You know, it would be nice for Michigan to start treating that game seriously. I, I, I wonder who their interim coach is going to be at that point that's going to make that a compelling game. Uh, it would be very Michigan if Harbaugh suddenly decides to resign like week 10, pursue NFL opportunities, things aren't going well, and they have a kind of a hard schedule. Like I, I kind of think, and maybe this is me being a homer, like I kind of think Washington's going to kill them. Um, and then uh, they have a different coach, and then they beat Ohio State for like the first time in, in, a, in a decade. That is a thing that could happen. It would make me upset, but it, w- it would also be a little bit funny. Um, one last question I wanted to ask here, and this is kind of an amalgam, uh, combining a couple of different Twitter questions we got. But hey, let's pretend you're in charge of the Big Twelve. It's eight months from now, what are you doing? 
Are you expanding? Who who are you adding? Are are you brokering some some heroic merger? What what is your play? If your if your charge is to drive the most value and create the best chance for a stable Big Twelve in the future, that's actually like feasible. Like you can't invite you know, the Atlanta Falcons. Well, I, I would probably start with, you know, I, I think moving west a little bit w- would help the league ultimately uh, to expand, expand kind of b- a bigger brand of football into the Mountain West time zone with, with BYU and Boise State in particular. I think that would be an e- easy play. I, I know there's, there's going to be issues surrounding Houston in the Big 12, but I think you know, that, that is that is a move that I think makes sense. Houston has 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 really raised the level of their program and raised the level of their university these last couple of years to where it's really a different Houston than, than we used to, we're used to seeing. Uh, yeah, you worry about recruiting issues and all that sort of stuff by, by bringing the Cougars in, but I think it would just make for a good fit with what the Big 12 currently is. And you throw in UCF in there, I, I think you could even expand with Cincinnati, certainly with the, the profile of program that they've had these last couple of years, and and maybe you kind of go off the board and, and add a USF as well, but uh, that would probably be my move. You know, go big, you know, really solidify yourself as that next league, uh, you know, behind the quote-unquote power four now, uh, because you, if you are those programs, you are those marquee names in football, not only can you maybe leverage that into the, the next television contract, but you can ensure that you get one of those college football playoff spots, which is going to mean a lot of money. I, I know that the pie is going to be split a few few more ways, but if, if you go big, you at least ensure your survival a little bit more than, than I think if you stay small like they currently are. I, I definitely think you have to expand. And, and I, the, the question, and I love to see some actual like white papers on this or like, or somebody beyond a message board person try to, to game it out about the pros and cons of going between 10, 12, 14. Um, Cause I, I look at, at the kind of pool of candidates and there's not a ton of separation, I think between like the, the, the candidate number three and candidate number like eight. Right. It, it just kind of depends on which on which who, what the avatar is, the Twitter person you're talking to. I, I would I would also expand. If I'm the Big 12, I think that my first priority, I got to get the biggest possible audience fan base that I can. One that has a demonstrated ability to drive eyeballs, not just from showing up for actual events um, and not just watching on cable television, but watching on streaming products. And that team is BYU. It's the biggest, biggest fan base in, 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 in this footprint. Um, and not just in Utah, but will also make you more relevant in, in parts where any, any place where there's a lot of Latter-day Saints. Um, you grab them, and then, yeah, you, need, you probably need another team in the West who's got the best football tradition in, in, in that area, who has a, a record of playing with them. You grab Boise. Um, that gets you to 10. And then, hey, you want to solidify. You need, you need to keep your irate eight membership as intact as possible. You talked about doing this last time, and you never did. You need to give West Virginia a team you can bust to. You need to give them another team in their time zone. You grab Cincinnati. Now you got you got you're a really good basketball league. And I've joked about this a couple of times before, right? But you do this, and then if you go into Texas, which is I think I'm with you. I think I would recommend they they add Houston, even though you not everybody loves their their you know Tillman. Um, not everybody loves all of the administrative and like people associated with Houston. But you need if you're going to add three people outside of Texas and you want to continue to make Texas an integral part of your league's identity, you need to have a bigger presence in some population centers outside of Dallas, uh, particularly since TCU ain't that big. The best option on the board is the Cougars. And then could you imagine UCF after everything that they've done and all of their sports and to not be one of those four? 
there would be lawsuits. And and so there I have to think like, okay, do you, do you go for, or do you grab UCF and I don't know, Memphis, SMU, pick out any Colorado state, you know, six other schools. I don't think there's a big difference. I don't know if you make more money or lose more money at, at 12 versus 14. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. I, I think the, the interesting thing too is because you are anticipating a huge drop in revenue, adding a, a program like Houston to where you can bus to them. And obviously you have two big airports where you can fly in there. I feel like that, w- that would make a lot of sense from just a, a travel perspective, not just with your football or, or basketball teams, or usually flying chartered anyway, but your volleyball teams, your teams that you need to bus. If you can save some costs like that uh, on that end, which we, we have seen the, the amount of cost savings uh, and how that has been reflected in budgets through through this kind of COVID year and the, the COVID year following that uh, pandemic. I mean, I, I think that would make a lot of sense. And, you know, like I was saying, this is a, a university that's that's on the rise, you know, I think in terms of where they want their brand to be, how they are building it. Uh, UCF in very much the same boat. And they're two large, you know, I, I think fan bases, um, you know, two young, large fan bases. And I think that can matter if you're looking really further into the future um, you know, versus a school like SMU. I, I think that might be a little tougher sell for the Big 12, especially given that they do have TCU there. Obviously, you have a lot of rivalries that, that go back a, a ways, but I think in, in the in 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 today's, um, you know, if if you can add two pretty large public schools like that, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, and I'm sure UCF would make a similar argument, right? Like, hey, we're one of the ten biggest public schools now in the country. We're you know, like Houston, we used to be a commuter school. It was Cougar High, I believe, when you were a kid, and UCF was uh, something similar. And now they have big residential uh, campus presences, and they're they're trying to be more uh, more than more than just hyper local regional universities. Um, I think the enrollment number is a little bit of a misnomer because uh, if you're not a state flagship and you have forty five thousand students, that that's not all forty five thousand potential sports fans. But even if only a third of them are, that's still bigger than SMU. Like that that's that that's still a big institution. Um, Please don't fight about me in my mentions about this, American Athletic fans. I've already muted most of UCF Twitter anyway. Um, I, I will do the same for anybody else. I, 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 for, for me, I think BYU, and this isn't just me being like biased, I guess. I think just commercially, that's overwhelmingly your number one option. Uh, and then I don't really feel super strongly about two versus like eight. If, if somebody wanted to send me a manifesto pitching Memphis, sure, I'll read it. And I think a lot of it's going to come down to what do the TV partners have to say in terms of what markets make sense? You know, what fan bases make sense? How do they view, you know, where, what time zones you're in? I think certainly a, a league that can play in Eastern, Central and, and Mountain time zones, uh, you know, is is pretty valuable, at least from a, a, a secondary television perspective. Um, to where you can kind of mix and match games. And certainly you, you mentioned the basketball component. That is in no way a driver of, of realignment. But I think for a league like the Big 12, it could really enhance them to where they're earning extra units come NCAA tournament time. And, and that's real money that these schools can also split when you think about it that way as well. Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, it would not shock me if in two or three years, you can add units from women's basketball performances too. I, I think that, that that's... That is coming based on yeah. based on the the uh, uh, gender equity report and in the men's bat in women's basketball teams. Either they they do away with the revenue sharing with the NCAA tournament and, and units as a concept entirely, or they they add it to the, the the women's basketball tournament. I think something along those lines is definitely going to happen. But yeah. that's a question I, for another podcast. That's 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 another podcast. But I, I talked to a few commissioners who said we support that and we've run data on it and, and here and here's what it would mean. Uh, that would be another potential uh, addition. But, you know, it's nice to be able to 
to sell 10,000 seats to uh, tickets to a basketball game, which BYU could do and uh, Houston can potentially do and some of these other schools can do too. Well, I mean, BYU is definitely the, the big fish out there, but, but I'll turn the question around to you. How, how receptive do you think BYU would be to losing their independence, especially now that they've signed a recent uh, new deal with, with ESPN, that they, they've at least felt comfortable in terms of scheduling as an independent? I think they like the where they are in the landscape. Do you, do you think they would be receptive to joining a Big 12 uh, as, as we think it's going to be currently constructed uh, come 2023 to 2024? five oh god yes <laughs> like, like this 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 is what i think is important right notre dame became independent out of necessity and then it became a defining characteristic of their institution byu is independent more for pragmatic reasons and would very much prefer to not be independent right there there, there are some benefits to the situation you make enough money to be in the black you get a chance to play across the country and that's important because not only do you get to put that play in markets um, where you can kind of be the traveling roadshow to Latter-day Saints and places where there aren't a lot of LDS people. I've been to BYU games at like New Orleans. I'm like that's a big deal if you're one of the seven Mormons in New Orleans, right? Like my congregation in Chicago like used to get, you know, increased by a third whenever like BYU is playing at Notre Dame or like or at Soldier Field or something because the, then they, you know, they, they all come in here. And that's, that's a big benefit. And they want to be able to play in places where they recruit. BYU's recruiting footprint is Southern California, Utah, Idaho, a little bit of Vegas, a little bit of Northern Arizona, uh, not, not Northern Arizona, a little bit around the Phoenix area, and they're trying to increasingly get into Texas. So like the American is less attractive because if you're playing the bulk of your games in places where there's no Latter-day Saints, um, and, and places like most of Florida and North Carolina and Philadelphia, um, it's a little bit harder to recruit. But in this situation, particularly if you bring in Boise and you can get more games in the mountain time zone and then you you just schedule a California team out of conference every year, that hits them everything that they need, especially because unlike the Pac-12 or the Big Ten, nobody in this league is going to make them try to change any foundational aspects of what makes their school a school, right? Um, there's going to be things that the Pac-12 administration want them to do that BYU is fundamentally not interested in doing. Like they are not going to play on Sunday. And if the NCAA or whatever NCAA 3.0 said you have to play on Sunday, BYU is just going to stop playing sports and they're going to be fine with that. Whereas I think a lot of other religious schools would say, eh, let's, let's find a way to make a deal. That's not how that's not how this church runs, uh, but they would love to do it. They would love to do it. They'd love the chance to play in the Cotton Bowl. They'd love a chance to play in a real bowl game. They would love that validation. They would love to not have to do the constant existential crisis. It's better to be in the Big East 2006 than it is to not be in a power conference. I, I, I would be truly blown away if the Big Ten, le- Big 12 leftovers said, you want to come do this, and BYU said no. And speaking of independence, then, a uh, question from Brett. Should we expect the same amount of college football independence uh, growth as these dominoes fall and teams are caught up in the middle and ejected from a higher status league or one they don't fit in uh, like a lower level league, is is there any risk to this scenario? Do you see more college football independence in the future? Yeah, we talked about this a couple of times. I know, like before the pandemic, that the administrators at UConn and UMass were like, I think more independents are coming, and I think more schools have talked about it. You need a couple of things to make it work, and it depends on what level you're trying to make it work. If you're trying to make it work like New Mexico State, where your idea is, I want a minimum viable product. I'm going to publicly say that I care about being competitive, but you get two drinks in me. I'm going to admit, I don't really care that much about being competitive. I'm hoping to make a bowl every five years. I'm here to play body bag games and fund my department. 
Um, could you do that as an independent and make more money than you do in the Mac or Conference USA right now? Yeah, you can. Um, if you want to actually compete for games that mean something, not necessarily the playoff, but like the Citrus Bowl um, and, and be contend for the top 25 and make enough money to make those things possible, that's not viable for a lot of teams. And if you are going to do that, it requires you to make a lot of investments in like your internal broadcast structure and your your scheduling infrastructure and take some element of risk. And I can see some schools, if things break a certain way, deciding to do that. I think West Virginia could pull it off, honestly. They, they've done it for decades. They find a place for their basketball team. I think they could cobble together an Eastern independent football schedule that, that West Virginia fans would be okay with. Obviously, a superpower like USC could pull it off. Could Kansas State? I don't, I don't think so. Like that, that there, I think are kind of caught in the middle where then it be, it's, you're missing the infrastructure that you need to make this profitable. I could be, I could be wrong, but I, I, I think you either got to be real, real bad, real, real good, or have a tradition and a more ready-made Olympic sports home to pull this off. I, I would agree with that. I, I think the, the interesting thing is what kind of are these larger changes to the NCAA governance that we're going to see as part of this convention, as part of these these breakaways, is it going to be even more conducive to, to go as that college football independent route, or is it going to be less conducive? Are we going to see the rise of more single sports conferences to where you can house some of those Olympic sports in you know, more regional uh, leagues that, that, that make it easier kind of, uh, you know, not worry, have to worry about those Olympic sports where you can't just focus on, focus on football. And, and what are the kind of the bowl situation going to be? I think that's that's a, a big unknown, especially with all the alliance talk. You know, you kind of expect more uh, closely regarded matchups with what the ACC, Big Ten and Pac-12. How does that kind of filter down to all these other bowls? How does ESPN events, which really runs and controls a lot of the bowl games out there and a lot of that postseason inventory, uh, you know, how are they going to kind of view some of these, not only the independents, but uh, a lot of these other conferences and, and how do they adjust those bowl tie ins from there? So I think that's, you know, the, the landscape is shifting so much that I don't think anybody really wants to go out on a limb right now unless they are truly forced to uh, go that independent route. And, and let's face it. There's, there's nobody that's a big enough brand. I mean, that, that is a huge part of why we're talking about these big Big 12 leftovers not having a landing spot in the Pac-12, not having any interest uh, from the Big 10 in any of them. So they, they just simply are not big enough brands to really go uh, the independent route. Unless your expectations are going to dramatically be lowered um, about what it is that you're trying to do, I think. Uh, Brian, I think that's all the, the, the big questions that I had here on my board. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I got a few more here. It looks like uh, one Twitter question. Uh, what are the long-term prospects of NIL efforts like the ones we that were announced at Miami and Michigan, which involved outside organizations arranging NIL deals for teams? Will they survive coaching changes, et cetera? Uh, I would also throw the, the BYU one in there, but we've, yeah. we have also talked about that uh, quite a bit as well. But the future of these NIL deals. This is a good question. I don't think the big concern here is about sustainability past coaching changes. I'm more concerned about sustainability financially for these businesses because they're major financial commitments. And once you get past that initial earned media push that Miami and BYU enjoyed, that the next person who does this is not going to enjoy at the same level, it's going to be diminishing from there. I don't know if they can afford it, right? So the, the built deal is, is a one-year deal. And, and built intends at BYU to, to, to extend that deal. And I want to say it's the same thing at Miami. I think it's one year with a, with a, a brand option to extend it. But what happens if uh, the market turns or if this if, if it turns out that not every athlete is, is an equally competent spokesperson? Um, 
do you keep doing this just for the sake of bagmanning? And again, that's not a pejorative here, like j- just for the sake of funneling money to athletes, or it, do you need to have a positive ROI on it? I, I've, I've kind of said this sort of jokingly, but like, I know there, there's one of these deals with like a, a Florida cryptocurrency startup, right? And I, I joked like, man, that, that sounds like exhibit B all over it. I, 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 I think we're going to see a business in the next year that overextended itself so much on some of these big splashy marketing deals that it, it goes under in 12 months. And, and maybe this ends up being like a securities fraud kind of question or, or end up in some future depositions. I'd be more worried about that. I, I'm sure these deals will, will keep continuing. Are all of them going to be so rock solid that I would bet my future education on it? I wouldn't. I, I completely agree. I think that is the, the the thing that's left unsaid with with a lot of these things. Is does it make business sense? And I, I think a lot of this these team wide deals, especially, are really designed to certainly get that unearned media and, and get in the headlines and uh, kind of promote your brand in, in a secondary way that way. But for for the most part, it, this is a a one to one type of uh, transaction to where you want to get you know just the the guy that with the most Twitter followers, yeah, a guy with. 15 Twitter followers and a hundred on Instagram, who's the backup left guard that brings a business nearly zero value. And while you can kind of write it off a little bit in terms of, uh, okay, this is, we, we got into a news article, so we have some unearned media and, and, and whatnot. I, I think you can, you can kind of rationalize things that way, but at the end of the day, these are businesses. It's got to make some sense on that front. And while you could write it off as, as some marketing spend and whatnot, I think for the most part, there's a reason why the bag men that this is kind of designed to kind of get around and, and, and push off to the side and bring above board. There's a reason why those bag men were never paying backup left guards. And there, there was a reason why they were never play, paying the third string uh, linebacker. You know, they just did not make a lot of business sense. And that will happen. They paid them yeah, once. Or they paid them once. When they were a four-star top 150 recruit. And then when they end up being the backup right guard. The bagman situation changes a little. But I mean, bit. like that—that uh, that to me is is the thing that that sticks out in my mind, especially with the, the team wine deals. Is it just does not make uh, a sense from a, a business perspective to to really be paying the whole team? And and I think we'll reach some sort of kind of stasis in the marketplace and, and we'll, we'll look for, um, you know, really, I think that the slack is, is going to end up being picked up by some of these larger companies. I think as they kind of move into the market, as it stabilizes and, and, and kind of settles out a little bit more. That to me is the more interesting thing about NIL is is how much are the big companies really going to start investing? I, th- I think it, it's coming. We've already seen some deals, but I think um, both at a, at a local and a national level, how involved are some of those other companies that that do you know want to go after specific athletes uh, to kind of help grow their businesses in a specific way? Uh, that that to me is the more intriguing thing about NIL. Yeah, that's that's. I don't think we're quite there yet either. I know there's been a, a few more in the last week or two. I'll tell you the exact thing that needs to happen before more bigger brands uh, get in. They need there needs to be better analytic data and better data post campaign for bigger companies to feel really confident in this because they know if I'm going to spend ten thousand dollars on Facebook, uh, ten thousand dollars even on a professional athlete campaign, I know exactly what success looks like. I know exactly uh, what I need to expect. I know exactly what I need to price. We don't know all of those things yet for college. And they're letting people like me do the initial benchmarking before they come in there and open their gigantic checkbook. Um, so I think I think that's kind of where we are now. Okay, last one. We've got one more question. It looks like uh, from JM on Twitter. Is there evidence that all this realignment and college football playoff expansion indicate that we've already seen peak 
college football playoffs, college football popularity, and these shakeups are all an attempt to re- reinvigorate interest in a slowly declining asset. Boy, I I honestly think that that's possible, and I also think that the slowly declining asset isn't that might be happening even if popularity remains static, just because the way that we've been primarily financing this sport, which is through media rights fees from linear cable. I, you know, we've been kind of predicting that, that those would start to come down for several years and that hasn't happened. I don't think it's going to happen for this initial deal. It is going to eventually happen. Those that money is going to eventually end up for YouTube uh, or for streaming or for things that have nothing to do with sports, especially because watching college football on television for three hours a day is less popular with people my age than it is for people twice my age. And it's even less popular for people uh, a generation younger than us. And and so that's going to be a, a, a thing here that executives are going to have to figure out. I, I completely agree that it, it, I don't know if we've necessarily reached peak college football popularity just because the sport has been becoming more national. You, you still go to places, especially in the Northeast, that frankly don't have as much exposure to college football as, as, as we think they do. But, um, you know, there, there are, there's growing phantom there. Um, you know, I think especially with the college football playoff era that has introduced more national general sports fan interest, especially at the end of the season. I think going to 12 teams is going to help that. But I, I do think the the middle and and kind of lower tier programs is is going to be a bit of an issue. Um, you know that to me is where uh, this this issue of peak popularity um, because those teams those teams are not only competing with the, the big dogs, the the blue bloods, the the Michigans, the USC's, the Alabamas of the world. They're also competing uh, increasing with their their eyeballs for video games, for movies, for streaming, and, and I think that is kind of the next frontier that. Not only college football, but all of sports has to be kind of thinking about as well is is you're competing for time and it's tough to sit down and, and like you said, watch three, three and a half hours of a college football game and do that on all, all Saturday and do it multiple times uh, throughout the fall. That, that is getting to be a big ask for a lot of folks. And so I think that is maybe the more of where kind of the peak popularity that we might see with sports in general uh, come into play. Yeah, I'll, I'll get I'll get us out of here on this. Like, this is the one thing here that every AD is thinking about right now when they're thinking about everything else. It's um, how do I build interest and connections to my program independent of the success of my program? How do I sell this as an emotional connection? How do I sell this as an event? And how do I reach people in smaller sound, sound bites and, and in different ways because my old strategy is simply not going to be effective for this rising generation? And unfortunately, not a whole lot of Gen Z and not even that many millennials working in college sports right now. So you're paying some consultant who's not one of those people to tell you what they think. Good luck with that. Um, thanks, everybody, for, for sending out some questions here for us. Uh, you can always at me, Matt Brown EP, unless you're a Central Florida fan trying to talk to me about why they should be in the Big 12. I don't care. I don't have a vote. Stop. Uh, everybody else, feel free to get my mentions. Shoot me an email at Matt at Extra Points MB and read the Extra Points newsletter at www.extrapointsnb.com. Brian, where can folks find you? If you're a UCF fan or a fan of uh, an Auburn or perhaps, and you wanted to debate Gus Malzahn's offense at UCF, sure, f- feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher. Otherwise, uh, that is the best place to uh, to find all my work as the season gets started here in earnest and, and we, get, uh, we get cranking out uh, a lot of content uh, as we move into the later stages of the fall here. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode here. If you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends. Tell, even more importantly, tell your algorithm. 
Um, <laughs> tell the people on the podcast hosting places uh, this is a fun way to spend a couple of minutes. In the meantime, everybody, thanks for listening. I'm Matt. That's Brian. We'll catch up with you next week.